Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 83, and Ndwandwe Chief Zwide is on the run, being hunted down by Shaka after the defeat on the Mplatuzi. Zwide was sitting in his mother's umuzi, called Ezequitchini, during the battle, awaiting word, and when it came, it was not what he was expecting. As you heard in episode 82, the dust clouds signaling approaching warriors were not his victorious Ndwandwe, they were the vengeful Zulu Mbelebele Obuto, seeking to take full toll on Zwide for his decades-long attacks south. Zwide managed to escape out of a door at the back of the Izigodlu, and the Zulu MP rolled over the hill into his mother's umuzi. There's a story about what they found inside the home of Ntumbazi, a macabre jumble of things. There were rings of brass and brushes then hanging on pegs at the back of her hut were human heads, ready for Muti. It shocked even the hardened Zulu warriors, who then set fire to her hut and the entire Muzi, and then they went further. It is said that these men impaled all the children on posts, but they were still not satiated. They wanted Zwide dead, and tracked him north across the Black Mfolosi, but the trail went cold, so the Impi turned back. They seized all the cattle they could find, and warned all Zwides and Dwandwe to throw down their spears and shields, or be killed on the spot. Most obeyed and were immediately inducted into Shaka's army. They had fought so well, he said. Shaka then made a point of going to Zwide's territory north of present-day Melmoth and setting up his Intontela Umuzi. Of Zwide's mother, Intombazi, we have scant information. She appears to have disappeared once her power was gone, and of her we hear no more. Zwide shifted his power base north of the Pongola River. Later, the myth would develop that Shaka now somehow controlled the whole of what we know as Zululand, but that's just wrong. Zwide was not dead, just hiding. Right now, and for most of the rest of the 19th century, the Zulus were not a cohesive centralized polity under the rule of a bloody despot. It was really a loose allegiance of chieftains brought together under Shaka now, partly by force and partly by persuasion, and right now partly in fear of Zwide's and Dwanwe. Historians writing during that century told of the desolation and the scourge of Shaka, who overran what became known as Natal, everyone fleeing like frightened deer. As I've said, this is simplistic. It would be a long haul between the defeat of Zwide and Shaka's final empire, and even that continued to be riven by clan violence. Should you take a drive north through Ishowe in KwaZulu-Natal, along the R66, to a valley called Inkweleni, where I grew up, about five kilometers outside Ishowe, turn right at the sign that says Kwabuluweo, Nandi's Grave, and Mandawe Cross. Then travel about 15 kilometers and you'll pass the Kwabuluweo Cultural Center on the left. A little further on, there's a white stone monument at a spot called Coward's Bush at the top of Matkwakazi Ridge. This is where Shaka set up his first major umuzi after he defeated the Ndwandwe. That's not far as the crow flies from where Shaka defeated the Ndwandwe at the Battle of Mvuzela. Some say Shaka walked along the Matkwakazi Ridge crest and could look out down across the valleys both north and south. To the north was the Mplatuzi Valley. To the south, he could see the Indian Ocean on a good day, and to the southeast, he could see the Ngoya forests near Nkantla. This is where Shaka set up his first and most famous umuzi called Kwabuluwao. Back in these days, there were thick woods growing up the nearby slopes, good for firewood and building. 
There's a famous dollarite cap on the hill, a hard, flat surface, and it's here that Sharker is thought to have built his early homestead, outside the main palisade. This was his private compound, so to speak, the highest point on the ridge reserved for the king of the Zulu. Kwa Buluwayo was probably just under 400 metres across, and about 300 huts lay within. But travellers, Finn and Isaacs, who we'll meet in later podcasts, said it was more like six kilometres in circumference. The reason why we don't believe it was as large as this is because archaeological test sites and digs show it was far more contained, and secondly, the ridge is not that size anyway. When Dingaan later built his huge muzi at Umgungunglovu, it was far bigger, about 600 metres across, with over 1,000 huts. But what is true is that a host of unofficial, smaller, informal dwellings were built around Shaka's Kwa Bulawayo main umuzi, what we call informal settlers these days. This Kwa Bulawayo was symbolic as the site of Shaka's first proper defensive umuzi post in Dwanwe defeat, standing out on the landscape for all to see Shaka was stamping his authority. Meanwhile, the wily old fighting fox Zwide headed off to the Ama and Zambomvu River, which was the tributary of the Nkomati River, and that river flows into Delagoa Bay, or modern Maputo. He was beaten, but not crushed, and there was something else that beckoned, according to historians, who've only recently managed to figure out the gaps in the stories told by Portuguese traders at Delagoa Bay. If you glance at a map of this region, it becomes quite clear how Zwide moved. The Nkomati flows out of the highlands of Mpumalanga, to the north of Eswatini, and it flows almost directly east, then bends north and finally twists south. It was close to the headwaters where Zwide set up his new HQ. It was also close to the main trade routes to Delagoa Bay, which had begun to experience a small uptick in the trade of human beings in the second decade of the 19th century. The American whalers had arrived. They used Delagoa Bay as a supply station. And of course, the Americans were prodigious slave traders, along with the French, even after their respective revolutions. Most historians agree the export of slaves was not the prime economy in southern Africa, unlike West or Northeast Africa. Here, it was ivory and hides, gold and other goods that proliferated. But the taking of slaves had been established as a lucrative second economy, if you like. There was nowhere near the volume experienced further northeast, with the Arab, Indian, Middle Eastern and Europeans all seizing slaves in huge numbers from the Lake Malawi area, or Lake Victoria, and so on. Zwide arrived after hurrying away from Shaka's wrath, and seems to have concentrated on the trade route up the Nkomati River. We'll hear a lot more about his antics later. The Portuguese, for example, wrote about the Ndwandwe in 1823. So, one of the first things that Zwide did after fleeing Shaka was to keep King Sabuza of the Lamini Swazi in check. The Ndwandwe leader was no idle threat even now. Shaka left him alone after the defeat, too busy absorbing the Ndwandwe and Mtetwa remnants further south. And contrary to the stories, he did this mostly without resorting to violence. We know that some of the Ndwandwe and Mtetwa still refused to Konza Shaka. Zwide's son, for one. Sikunyani ignored the Zulu, relying on his powerful Ubuto, and actually rebuilt one of his Umuzi at the Mtlongamvula River, near the Izindololwani hills. But another of Zwide's sons, called Somapunga, decided he'd support Shaka and became a respected Isukulu, a counsellor. Remnants of the Mtetwa to the north on the upper Black Mfalosi, under Mkosi Ka Mgudlana, announced that they were going to Konza Shaka and he travelled with them to their new home on the border of the Ndwandwe territory, to the new Nkanda, Mpangisweni. 
That was near a mountain called Ngormi, east of where Freyhate is today. It's important to mention a few things about distance and how people travelled during this time. It's hard to imagine for most of us, sitting in our comfy chairs, sipping cappuccinos and driving one kilometre to the Woolworths, that folks kind of got about by foot at a fairly hectic clip back in these days. Take the distance from Kwa Bulawayo, near Ishowi, to Mpangisweni, which was walked by Shaka. That's 366 kilometres, a five-hour drive by car. If you walk it solidly, you'll do it in 70 hours going flat out, according to Google Maps. So probably a 10-day walk for people like me. If you're a Zulu warrior and in good shape, you'll trot along at about 40 to 50 kilometres a day and take around a week. Shaka would have stopped off at his various muzi on the way for conjuring and partaking in imizi delights and general festivities. So expect about 10 days one way. Or for those living in the UK, it's like walking from London to Edinburgh starting this week Friday and arriving Monday week. Shaka reinforced tradition after defeating Zwide by appointing what were known as the Grand Old Ladies, Amakoskais, to oversee the affairs of the Amakanda, the homes. They ordered the women and the men about, as the Amakosakazi still do. They were in charge of the women of the Izgodlu and had to be convinced of matters before change was instituted. They were powerful figures who ensured the various rituals were followed, no taboos were broken, marriage alliances properly structured, food and other provisions stored and collected. They monitored the agricultural production and who got access to food and when. Their own lives were elevated substantially. They created lineages that were prestigious and economically vital. Most importantly to the Zulu, they were also the representation of the ancestral spirit worship. They controlled these ceremonies. So who were these women? We know a great deal about them, unlike some of the men who've come and gone. As with other patriarchal societies, it's the women who really are the dominant force in a bizarre anthropological truism. Shaka's paternal aunt springs to mind, Mkabai Kajama. She was instrumental in bringing Shaka to power, tall and imposing. She was called the Great She-Elephant, or the Isitubisikase, a weighty woman who was actually literally a weighty woman. Not obese, but folks would call her bulky. When the army went on campaign, it was Mkabai Kajama who performed their famous rituals, usually in February or by the end of March. First, the warriors turned out to be sprayed and otherwise prepped by the war doctors. Then they'd head off to Makosini to pay respects to their ancestors' graves, then walk to Mkabai's home at Nobamba. She would ensure everyone was present and correct, then wish them all well for their sojourn. After Shaka did away with the Ndwanwe in the region, Mkabai took over their own Mumuzi at Esiklebeni and other locales. When she died, her grave became its own site of ritual. She was at the forefront of Shaka's colonization of other groups, and her presence was like a force of nature. Usukrili, father of guile, goes the praise song about Nkabai. Cunning one of the Hoshosa people, who devours a person tempting him with a story. She killed Bedu amongst the medicine men, and destroyed Umkongu Yiyiyana amongst the Ngadini and killed Beje amongst the Divanas. Morass of the Menzi, the Menzi are the Zulu royalty, that caught people and finished them off. But when she aged, apparently, she became more deadly, and that really impressed the praise poets. Maid that matured and her mouth dried up.
and then they criticized her amongst the old women. She who allays for people their anxiety. They catch it, and she looks at it with her eyes. The opener of all the main gates, so that people may enter. Sipper for others of the venom of the cobra. Damakosikazi managed these Amakanda, who were spread out across the territory, controlled by Shaka, and to the north they outlasted most of the others. The Pongola Amakanda was furthest north. There were a number around the central area of the Mfolozi, particularly the white Mfolozi close to Matlabatini, and it was here that Mkabaya's twin sister, Osebeni, oversaw an important muziat in Tlazachi Mountain. I'll return later to Shaka's actions in 1821 in upcoming podcasts, along with his important Amakoskazi. But now we need to remind ourselves of what was going on across southern Africa and beyond. We've spent four recent podcasts diving into the creation of the Zulu as a major force in the general history of South Africa. Shaka's arrival had rewritten oral history in a single generation and created a host of new stories. Our next arrivals on the coast of southern Africa were going to shake up the society as fundamentally as the Amazulu, and they were immigrants from England called the 1820s settlers. To tell their story properly, we must relocate our minds in an instant to the cold and windy island of Great Britain, immediately because plans were afoot in 1819 to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, to placate angry citizens and to reinforce distant colonies. In July 1819, the British House of Commons voted to sponsor a huge immigration scheme with a vast sum of £50,000. The idea was for 1,000 families to be sent to the Cape, or to the Albany district of the Cape, to be more accurate. Remember Lord Charles Somerset wanted to create some kind of advanced English society around Grahamstown after securing the colonial border and forcing out the Amatkoza from the thickets and from what was previously known as the Zudfeld. It was time to show the Amatkoza the benefits of peace and trade, and who better to do this, he thought, than Europeans, uh, specifically the super-civilized English. The Amatkoza had been traveling to Grahamstown after the defeat of Nkleli, the war doctor, selling their animal skins and buying goods from the traders, along with other commodities. The clincher, he thought, was to inject outsiders into this region who would increase settlements and therefore increase the colony's capacity to defend it against Amatkoza to the east. And the visiting Amatkoza would be amazed by their capacity to farm, and then they would line up to work, he thought. Recent historiography has fixated on this as a kind of conspiracy to disown blacks of land, but there was no conspiracy. It was as transparent as an Amsterdam sex worker under a red light, to mangle another metaphor. The idea of selling someone else's land was right up front and central. No one was trying to hide or conspire. We're going to hear how this concept was sold literally to men in England as an investment opportunity first. It was about money not about theology, nor some quasi-colonial hidden agenda. This was an example of purebred capitalism at the heart of the British financial power, cocooned in a wonderful printed prospectus coated with a gloss of hubris. No need to conspire when you're telling everyone exactly what you're doing and when there's no one to stop you. Let's initiate the conundrums by describing the controversy that surrounded Lord Charles Somerset's son Henry and the erstwhile Graf Reinet Landrost, Andri Stockenström, just to set the tone. It was in October 1819 that Somerset had written a letter to Lord Bathurst in England, 
informing him that Ingleli the war doctor was defeated. Stockenstrom was now on full pay and promoted to full captain of the Cape Corps, having been so successful at helping rid the Albany region of the Amatosa. He was given more land, or told he was going to be, and then informed that Somerset Junior Henry would become Deputy Landros of the nearby town of Judenhaeg. Henry, it appears, was out of the blocks early when it came to the 1820 settlers, and made the clumsy mistake of selecting some of the prime land around Graf Reynet, which had been owned by the Amatkosa for the hoped-for incoming British settlers. The only problem was that land was now owned by the Trekboers, at least that's what they said. Stockenstrom had a hissy fit and headed off to Cape Town to resolve the land issue. His first port of call there was a meeting with Colonel Byrd, the colonial secretary. Secretary Byrd, you could say. Yes, it's been a long day. Stockenstrom told Byrd that Henry was making arbitrary decisions concerning land. Byrd asked if he should mention this to Henry's dad, Charles, and Andres, being a young, hot-headed lad, said, Yes, go ahead, make my day. Later, Lord Charles met Stockenstrom, having been told that the Boer was bad-mouthing his son, and said, I understand you have been complaining to the colonial secretary of my son's proceedings. I know that he will do his duty, and let me tell you, sir, that no one has ever embroiled himself with any one of my family without repenting it which is a blunt threat, if there ever was one. Instead of letting this pass, Stockenstrom, being young and somewhat hot-headed, then decided to go AWOL from a dinner that evening hosted by Somerset, who growled about the affront. It was a time of multiple insults, and in that situation, no one ever wins. A rift had developed at precisely the moment where these two men, representing two different cultures, were going to find themselves most sorely pressed. Everything revolves around how you treat your fellow human being, and believe it or not, this exchange was going to resonate across the next decade. This is not an exaggeration, as you'll see. The first effect was felt by Andre Stockenstrom. The British immediately put him back on half pay, and his land grant was taken away. Then Stockenstrom's brother, who was a second lieutenant in the Cape Corps, was falsely accused of theft. This was to gnaw away at Andres like a giant African red ant. Both the British and the Boers had very long memories, and this was another arrow in the back of togetherness, let's just say. Meanwhile, another famous name made his appearance, the acting governor who was to replace Somerset. Major General Sir Rufain Shaw Donkin was an official from India whose young wife had just died, and he had asked to recover at the lovely climate of Cape Town, rather than the harsh environment of the Deccan Peninsula. As he made himself comfortable in the lee of that beautiful mountain the Cape Townians smoke about, back in England, the end of the Napoleonic Wars had set off a literal conflagration. It was a dark age indeed. Riot and disorder followed Napoleon's defeat, along with repressive legislation against the press, economic collapse, unemployment and social upheaval. It was a miserable time in England, these 1819s and 20s. The Industrial Revolution was in a transitional phase. Men and women who'd expected better had found things worse. Lancashire had turned almost into another country, openly hostile to government and the upper classes, while the ageing King George was slipping away in his chamber above the North Terrace at Windsor. His imminent death represented the mood of the time. 
English citizens were flooding across the Atlantic into North America, but it was now that Lord Bathurst thought it was wise to deflect some of that traffic south. The English had been defeated by the Americans during the War of Independence. Now here were their citizens hastening off to the New World instead of Africa. Bathurst wrote, The stream of emigration from the United Kingdom has taken a westerly course. Southern Africa has been often pointed out as the most precious and magnificent object of our colonial policy. He spoke of, Our noble station at the Cape of Good Hope has the finest soil and climate in the world. It is the centre of both hemispheres. It commands the commerce of the globe. He wanted to make the Cape a free port for the nations of Europe, and we banish North America from the Indian seas, carry out as settlers all the families who have not bred or labour here, and we lay for posterity another England. Another England. Unfortunately, some of our South African English-speaking brethren still regard parts of South Africa as another England. But I digress. Newspapers back in 1819 began publishing extravagant claims about the potential in South Africa, particularly the Times, and eventually Parliament voted that £50,000 for assisted passages. 90,000 applications were received, but fewer than 5,000 were accepted. Before we go any further, a quick word about how this worked, because it's illuminating. It was a bit like the green card lottery of today to enter the United States, but also featured a few bent rules. Applications from individuals or families were not considered, which must come as a bit of a surprise to some hearing this show. Land in South Africa would only be granted to those who could actually afford to develop it, so the scheme was only open to the leaders of groups who could then hire at least 10 able-bodied men over the age of 18. So forget about this magnanimous all-comers-welcome approach. This was a clever government strategy. They wanted these immigrants to survive and not be a drain on resources. The director of a party would be granted 100 acres of land for each adult male under his direction and would gain full title to his new Albany slash Eastern Cape estate after it had been occupied and cultivated for a minimum of three years. The English were exporting the concept of landed gentry to Africa. There were 56 immigrant parties selected to sail, but only about a dozen of these parties actually fully met government requirements. They were the main or proprietary parties made up of masters and indentured European servants, the new landed gentry of the Cape. Many of these had aristocratic connections back in England. The remainder of these 1820 settlers were men who banded together to purchase stock, a joint venture, so to speak. One would be selected as leader, then the joint stock companies would be made up of artisans and tradesmen, middle-class men of education and means, school teachers, ministers of religion, merchants. None were agricultural labourers. While the quality of the winners of this African lottery were going to infuse the Cape with a greatly needed level of skills, they were going to be a big problem on the new farms because they had no idea how to farm in England and the Eastern Cape was even more challenging. It's dry, the soils are bad, and there was no labour. With that warning jangling in our ears like the twisted spurs of an impoverished livestock farmer, it's time to halt for this episode. In episode 84, we'll meet some of these new immigrants, and like the Huguenots, their stories are epic. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com.
I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at Des Latham. Until next, may you have fair winds and following seas. Goodbye. Thank you.